Hi, I'm Srinivas Kanteti, the founder and CEO of Wheel CMI Private Limited, also brand named as Bike Bazaar. Very happy to be here today with you people. The Indian two-wheeler market is really a shining example of how India has progressed and evolved. In the pre-liberalization era, the brands that we all knew of with the two-wheeler space were mostly Japanese brands like Honda, Suzuki, Kawasaki, Yamaha. But really today, the Indian brands completely dominate the market and one of the most admirable Indian brands is Bajaj Auto. Srinivas joined Bajaj Auto at the stage where it was transforming from being known as the maker of Chetak to being known as the maker of high-performance bikes like the Pulsar or the KTM. In fact, the Pulsar was lost within a year of Srinivas joining. Over the next decade and a half, Srinivas saw up close and personal that amazing transformational scale-up journey of Bajaj Auto and we talk a lot about his learnings from that journey. By the time Srinivas finished 15 years at Bajaj, he decided to do something of his own and he stuck to what he knew best, the two-wheeler market. But this time he decided to approach it from the lens of financing as a way of improving access to two-wheelers. Now, you may think that financing is really a done dusted market. I mean, it's so easy to get financing when you walk into a showroom, but really... If you go into tier three, tier four cities, if you're trying to buy a used bike, then the problem of financing still exists. And this is really a massive opportunity that Srinivas's startup, Bike Bazaar slash Wheel ZMI is chasing. And the way they are chasing it is by really using a full stack approach and not just looking at simple financing, but then also building solutions around retail, around quality check, around helping customers feel more assured when they buy a used two-wheeler. And the proof of the hard work they've done is in the fact that they've raised more than $50 million till date with the most recent round being of about $20 million. This conversation is a must listen for anyone who really wants to understand the evolution of the two-wheeler market in India and some of the up-and-coming opportunities in this space. You're listening to the Founder Thesis Podcast and I'm your host, Akshayta. I actually joined the Tata's uh, uh, company called Tata Electric, okay, where where I was very keen to work on their new 500 megawatt power station, uh, which had come up at Trombay. And uh, so I was there for two days exactly when they transferred me to, I think, a five megawatt uh, substation uh, somewhere, uh, sorry, power station somewhere in the remote corner of Maharashtra. And after two days, I quit the job and I just walked out. And said that, no, this is not for me. I quit uh, my first job in four days. And, and when I went to the for my interview for the second job, and that's when the HR manager said that, no, how can you quit a job in four days? And what's the guarantee that you would be here with us? And that this was in uh, multinational Siemens. And uh, so I told him, I said that, look, if I stay for four days, that means you can take it for granted that I'll be here for a long term. So uh, I think that answer, that, that answer really helped me. I got the job and I worked there for 12 years, 12 solid years with Siemens. I did all kinds of things, mainly in the, I was in the front end of the business. So I was a product manager, the link between sales and factory. So it was a techno-commercial job, selling switchgear, switchboards, motors from the head office. So was transferred to Germany for about two years, so worked there in Germany. At Erlangen. And Germany was very different during those days. You could not get along there without knowing the language. So 
I learned the language and I was pretty fluent in German and did well there. Came back and uh, then worked further and uh, Siemens sent me to IIM Ahmedabad as they have this six-month program for working executives. So it's a full-time six-month program. And I think that exposure was very good because it opened up a whole lot of new world for me, which is which was just beyond hardcore electrical engineering and uh, what you're doing. And when I came back, somehow I started feeling that I need to spread my wings. I need to try something else. And also the family was growing and I was looking for a little more money. I had two kids by that time. And that's when I went to a headhunting company and asking for a job. And instead of them give, finding a job for me, they actually made me an offer. And so I, I joined the headhunting company as a headhunter without without knowing anything about ABC consultants. Yeah, this is ABC consultants. So Dr. Agarwal, uh, it's, uh, it's pretty legendary. So and it's a very strange kind of a company, ABC Consultants, in the sense that 90% of the people working in ABC Consultants were engineers. And they would never hire a single HR guy, actually, in the company. It was a hardcore, you know, thing, recruitment company. They actually wanted domain expertise. You know? They wanted people who had worked in the industry, the people who had done actual sales, marketing, production. So we had all these kind of people and... I think the background also is that they used to run industrial consulting extra earlier, but they mainly became a headhunting company. So this is where actually I would say that two things happened actually there, uh, I think, uh, or three things. The first is that it was a job wherein I was independently responsible for my branch. And if in the end of the month, I did not make enough money, I would not have money to pay salaries. Okay. But of course, it was not that bad. I could always call up the head office and they would send money for the salaries. But that was a shame, actually. That was, uh, you don't do that. So so it really made you an entrepreneur uh, that you're running your own show. And almost whatever money you made, 15% of the money was, uh, no, I think 25%, 25% of the money was yours. And obviously, to be distributed among your, your colleagues, team and how you distribute was left to you. And so there were very good management techniques which people evolved over time. I would say that was the first thing. The second learning that I got, of course, was that various industries, it was from IT to engineering to FMCG, exposed to various industries, exposed to various various functions. Uh, and you are interviewing these people before you put them up for, for the client. So you learn a lot. Okay, I think that came out very fast. And the third, of course, was that at least I got to meet a lot of entrepreneurs because as a company, when we would go, we would actually try to meet the CEO. Of, of course, the HR person was also important, but we'd also like to meet the hiring manager, the CEO. Uh, and that's when you get a lot of exposure at a very young age to these people, actually, as how they think and how they, how they, how they act. So these are the things which yeah. I really learned there. Mm. I just had one question. So like consulting companies, like say EY, KPMG, they have like this whole partner track and the people working in it also become equity owners after a certain point of time. So what, was ABC like that? L like the global consulting companies? Yeah, I wouldn't say exactly like that, but it, 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 it had something really much better in fact. And one is that you were straight away a part of the profit share of what you were making really. Okay. So, uh, so that there was straight away coming to you because it's a private limited company. Okay. And when you do well, you know, as a headhunter and you really make a good amount of money, a decent amount of money you make. And the second is that I joined them and within three years, I became a director on board. So I got promoted thrice and then became the director on board. So, which is, which is pretty good when you're a director on board, you are actually then your profit shares also go up significantly because you are then controlling a much, much bigger span of people. So. 
So I would say that it was a great experience, but I really was not cut out to be a headhunter all my life. Okay, in this sense that I was still missing the big company, the big thing, the big big excitement of big company. And I used to get offers from almost a lot of clients whom I was consulting with. So that was a very normal kind of a thing which would happen. And so one of the days I made a mistake. I headhunted one of the most what you call important guy from Bajaj Auto out actually. And so. And the process of editing is pretty painful in the sense there's a three month, you have to hand over for three months so that okay, the guy is still very much interested. He's still going to join your customer, you know, your, your client and all that. You owe it to your client and all that. And many a times the dropouts happen within the three months period. Okay. It can be quite frustrating many a times. And in this case, actually the dropout did happen. So after a month and a half or so, after extensive handholding, etc., and he was held back, and he was held back by none other than Rajiv Bajaj, okay, who at that time was the vice president uh, of the company, the son of Rahul Bajaj, uh, but still not, you know, still not taken over as MD, etc. He grew up the ranks, uh, so it's a fantastic guy. You know, College of Engineering, Pune, gold medalist, comes from that background, then goes to Warwick, works in the shop floor, works on R and D, okay, and. Comes up from the bottom really to an extent. So he held them back and then he wanted to know who's this headhunter who did this. And so this guy called me up and said, that, oh, Look, this guy, Rajiv, wants to meet you, but I have not told him. I said, I, I have no problem. I, I always like to meet people. So let me go and meet him. And so I met him and somehow we clicked off well. And then he started giving me assignments and which I was doing. And that's when I think uh, at some stage he asked me that, Are you going to do this in all your life or do you want to do something bigger and do you want to be more ambitious? And that's when he offered me a job as a human resources head at Bajaj Auto. At the age of 39, I go there as the head of human resources. Never done human resources in my life. In a mechanical engineering auto company, I knew a lot about auto companies because a lot of them are clients. But I'm an electrical engineer, not mechanical. Okay. And so it was a, a small team which Rajiv had put together and I became a part of that team. And so, and the rest is history. I worked there for 15 years. And before I left, I was the president of the auto finance business and then the president of the motorcycle business. And I would say that a lot of my maturation, a lot of my learning is actually from what I did in at Bajaj and or what I learned at Bajaj. And the kind of opportunities Bajaj Auto gave me was fantastic. I don't think any HR guy would have got that kind of jobs. When I was running HR, I was doing assignments on marketing, sales. I was doing all kinds of things, actually. So somebody used to ask me, are you really HR guy? You know, I mean, what are you doing? I'm not, actually. So it was a great, great 15 years. I can talk about it a little more detail. And this is where the learning is actually happening. Okay. So there are two questions I have. One is, of course, what were those learnings? But the second is, the finance part of Bajaj is in a different group, right? Like Bajaj, FinServe, or Bajaj Auto also had a finance division in-house, is it? So a little complex in the sense that you're right. The finance division is uh, the Bajaj FinServe part of it. But uh, when I joined in the year 2000, uh, there were only two companies. There was Bajaj Auto and there was Bajaj Auto Finance. Okay, and that's, and I was there during the process where there was a holding company made and Bajaj FinServe was separated out and Bajaj Auto Finance went under Bajaj FinServe. Two insurance companies got opened up around that. So, in fact, uh, for a long time, I was helping out on the HR side for even Sanjeev. Uh, and because Sanjeev was there, Sanjeev Bajaj was there at, in the Bajaj Auto and he knew me very well. And I was working along with him. He used to handle exports earlier and all that. So, did all that. In fact, I was involved in the hiring of Rajiv Jay. So, when at some stage it was de decided that the auto finance part of the business of, of Bajaj Auto Finance, which is a capital finance, needed a, a separate way to handle, needed a separate person to handle. And uh, I created that structure that though it will be in the uh, residing in the FinServe, but there will be a separate set of team which will be handling it. 
Okay, and they will work very closely with the Bajaj Auto team because it's a captive uh, finance team. They will be co-located, they will be together. But ensuring that all the profitabilities, everything are maintained and it goes there. Uh, so it was a bit of a complex kind of a thing which was drafted and then they were looking at somebody to head it. And that's when I told Rajiv, I said that I had enough of it, sir, now I'm going there. I, I, would, uh, I literally almost forced him to you know, put me there. Uh, and so that's how I went to the auto finance uh, part of the business and ran it for four years, actually. And uh, pretty successful four years. So that's when I got promoted to president. And then when Sridhar, who used to head our motorcycle business, left, Rajiv brought me back to Bajaj Auto saying that, no, you now head the motorcycle business. So that's how I was. I was very lucky to handle three critical functions uh, and even, in, in fact, four. There was also the pro biking part, which I handled for uh, some time, which now finally has become KTN. Okay, we set up company-owned stores uh, across India, so uh, about 30 of them at that time. And they have now become marquee uh, showrooms for KTN now. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Th this was when Pulsar was launched and they wanted a more... Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So uh, a few years after the Pulsar was launched, Pulsar was launched in 2000, the year I joined. Chakan plant was also launched at that time. And uh, I think after two, three years after that, we thought about doing this go biking and saying that we also had the Avenger or it used to be called as Eliminator during those days. So we had only two two products. Uh, we had the Pulsar 150 would still be sold out of all showrooms, but the Pulsar 180 would sell out of the pro biking showrooms and uh, Eliminator. And slowly, of course, products got added. The Pulsar 180 was the first bike I bought. Once I started earning a salary, that was like the, the first purchase I did with my own money. <laughs> so then... What memories of that? Yeah, and actually, the Pulsar 180 was always bought by people who are who really knew about biking. Actually, because otherwise, it looked exactly the same as Pulsar 150. There was no difference at all. But you know, it really packed a boom. Yeah, it was definitely for enthusiasts. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, so what? Like, if you could encapsulate, what were like the things you learned there? Like, it could be in terms of learnings about. The business levers or learnings about oil building or running large organizations? Yeah, I would say that it was a huge organization. It was very big. When I joined 17,500 people, okay, I was coming from an organization which had a total of 120 people or 150 people. So here suddenly 17,500 people, its own hierarchies and all that. And also the fact that Mr. Rahul Bajaj was still very much active in the business. Okay, He was the managing director okay, of the business. And so you you were exposed to him and especially HR, certain decisions, whether when you're hiring certain level of people and above, he would meet them, he would interview them. Every year, your appraisals, every year, your etc. finally had to be signed off by him. So it was like a very, very, I would say, you know, all the complexities of a large business. But one of the things that I learned, and I've not talked too much about auto and all that. Of course, I learned a lot about auto. I learned about this and all that. But I think one of the... Two, three things. First is, of course, is the fact that organizations evolve over a period of time. And, you, and this evolving or the changing of the organization, when it happens, there is resistance, of course. But the best way to, to actually make the change happen is to be very fast and firm about it rather than drag it a lot. Okay, so just to give you an example. So when I joined, we were 17,500 people. In four years' time, I brought down the number to 6,000 people. Okay, now, so every year, uh, luckily Bajaj also had, was financially pretty good. This is still financially very good. So we had money to actually do the VRSs to downsize people because the organization might... might Downside was because of modernization, like you didn't need so many people. 
because of modernization? No, I would say it, it was because of a mindset change or, or a change, complete mindset change, which was happening within the organizations, saying that we were a uh, Bajaj Auto was essentially a manufacturing-led company. Everything uh, revolved around manufacturing. So if you look at uh, if you look at during those days, we had you had huge machines which were not flexible, which were machines which can do the same component hundred times, uh, etc. But if that model goes away, those, those machines can take a hell lot of time to retool or whatever it is. And we had everything in house. We had heat treatment in house. We had a press shop in house. So uh, the mindset was changing from being a manufacturing-oriented company to becoming more and more a marketing and a R&D-oriented company. So the skill sets were becoming very different than what you wanted. Okay, so and and also how to variableize your cost because at the end of the day, a business is risky. So if you are able to together, for example, do you really need to run a press shop? Okay, or do you really need to? So uh, what was done was uh, 10 key processes were identified saying that these 10 key processes we will never we will never subcontract we'll do it ourselves everything around that had to be then subcontracted out and i think during those time we had something like about 800 vendors or something they were brought down to 125 or 150 but okay so tierizing the vendors and ensuring that you have lesser number focus on quality focus on this because the market was changing the entire condition had changed the market moving away from scooters to bikes Okay, so I, I think first thinking out the strategy and second is that single-mindedly driving it, okay, without getting distracted is, is what, what I learned from Bajaj Auto. I learned from Rajiv and he had also fantastic guys like Pradeep Srivastava and Joe. Joe was the youngest R&D head of, at, at Bajaj. He's the guy who did the pulses and all those things. So it was a very, very vibrant young team on one hand, okay, trying to make all these changes. And then, of course, there was the other generation which was there. So the shift is never easy. Oh. And as they say, you need a lot of conviction in doing it. And especially when you are also dealing with a very, very aware person like Rahul Bajaj who question everything. And you cannot get away with just saying that I'm doing what I want to do. You'll have to give all the logics, etc. and all that. So I think that was a fantastic learning. So this is one part I would say is that change happens and you better be a part of change and you do it fast. The second learning for me was that the entire business about not being me too and about brand and this is what is helping in me in my current business also is that creating a differentiation and i mean that during those days you remember when i was working for apc and all that everybody wanted to put up a power plant everybody wanted to put up a cement plant you know i did some work for raymond's for example the organization they were doing everything they had a cement plant they had a steel plant they had everything like ah they had an airlines they had a hospital they had a school okay of course they were doing textiles and all that okay and um, they had a they had a condo business and I mean they had all kinds of things so happening and, and when you come to a company like Bajaj Auto with Rajiv and clear focus saying that no I am a motorcycle guy I'm going to do only motorcycles I'm not going to do anything else I'm going to create a brand I'm going to be differentiated there and when the whole world was making 100cc bikes I mean he had the gumption to go and do a 150 and a 180 okay uh, also and I was there during those famous meeting which he keeps on quoting wherein McKenzie had actually told us why are you dancing around the market by bringing in the 150 180cc product and how much you're going to sell really okay and you can't even make a 100cc bike so how are you doing this kind of a thing and they, they, their suggestion was that we should focus on the 100cc rather than trying to do this pulses uh, kind of a thing uh, so that's where the learning came from the whole world is now also talking about how you need to focus how you need to differ and also the fact that focus means sacrifice. That means you can't do certain things. So in my company, people keep on asking me that they are. They say that in finance business, we are essentially in the finance business today. Uh, we are building a also a marketplace, but the, the finance business they keep on saying that there's a concentration risk. Why only two wheelers? You know why you are not looking at 
at least do cars at least do you know more uh, no at least do trucks at least do three wheelers you know just add a few more wheels you know? i have to keep on telling them that no 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 our expertise is too and we need to focus on two and that's what we want to do actually mm, yeah it's very hard for an entrepreneur to say no that's a rare skill yeah. yes it is it is and i keep on getting tempted and i would say that it's not as if the temptations don't come but then i keep on going back to my old learnings adding that you know what even a four five days back there was this company which was available you know in some way which was doing you know, on truck financing and said oh, no we don't know anything about trucks and you know, let's not get into it you know everything is different just because it has four wheels it doesn't mean it's two motorcycles put together the whole world is different and that's where i find that the financial services industry a little funny because there its opposite is true the uh, people don't like uh, concentration risks so they feel that if you're diversified across segments if something happens to you then you know but then you end up making very little money if you're not if you're not a specialist so how did that move happen from being part of the leadership at bajaj to being a founder yeah i think it was uh, i had promised myself long back that at the age of 55 i would retire okay and i was close to that and uh, it was in 2014 yes 2014 when i went and told rajiv that look i would like to now take a break i would like to leave uh, and uh, i would like to do something else altogether so we had a long chat and uh, he obviously was not not very happy initially but then rajiv was very fair in his uh, approach on this and uh, he said okay all the best and when i went to meet the chairman mr lal bajaj she was a little more upset than me saying that really you want to leave so and what are you going to do and so i i had certain thoughts in my mind i started a consulting company and wherein i did a lot of work with Uh, companies like escorts so i was part of their management committee to advise them in the transition from being a, again a multi product company to becoming more of oh, so they had the machine tools uh, they had they had they used to make they, they used to uh, have this various uh, other than tractors they had in small uh, operations okay so got them to sell a couple of them got the merger happened did the same thing in terms of manpower variableize the cost etc so nikhil ananda so worked very closely with them good friend even now Okay, so I was doing that, and that was when my uh, other co-founder, Karuna Karan, who was my, who used to work along with me in auto finance, and he continued to work in auto finance, and he has almost his entire life he has spent in the two-wheeler industry, and both at the OE side and also finance side, and whatever I learned of finance, I learned from him actually. So I didn't know anything about finance at all. So all the learning came from him. So he came to me one day saying that you know he was quitting and he was joining a competition as CEO. And that's when I asked him. He said the same age as me, and he said that don't you think it's time that we do something ourselves? We have passed the stage of wanting a secure salary. Bajaj paid well. Bajaj really pays well. So we had money to take care of at least our needs, if not luxuries. Children were getting settled. So he also liked that idea, and that's how we thought that you know we would start something on our own. And at that time, we were uh, dabbling with the idea of doing microfinance because microfinance was the at that time a very hot subject. And some of our friends actually had become entrepreneurs and they had done very well actually. But then when we sat and we discussed again the first principles, going back to the first principles, we said that look, we don't know anything about microfinance. So the uh, let us actually look at two wheels that's what we know and and that's how we started off and i went back to rajiv pajaj and i told him look you know what i'm going to start a two wheeler finance company and so he asked me uh, 10 questions as to what is my differentiation what is it that i can do which bajaj finance cannot do so i think i had answers to all those questions we had thought about it so what were those answers like if you can so further i'll have to talk about the industry a bit then okay uh, and, and, and and let me do that so why did we select two wheelers okay uh, okay and 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 there are three uh, main reasons for uh, selecting it 
the first reason I already told you that the fact that we know two wheelers well. Okay, so we know two wheelers, and mostly everybody in the two wheel industry knew us. You know? So that was a big advantage. But knowing is not enough, right? This is a business actually. The second uh, was that India is the largest market in the world for two wheelers, and uh, uh, it is by far the largest. And even today, the penetration levels are still much smaller as compared to countries like Indonesia, uh, other countries which are also large two wheeler markets. China, for example, is a large two wheeler market. So if you look at their penetration, they are about uh, family wise about hundred. 20% penetration. India is still lower. Now it's 60% penetration. So still there's a lot of scope for penetration to increase in India. Okay. And the other fact is that as far as up to, I would say now up to 250-300cc bikes and you live in Japan, so you know this well. I think the Indians have now more or less reached the level at which a Japanese would have been there. And sometimes they started beating them also at cost. So if you are a Harley Davidson, say for example, you cannot survive in the world unless you have an Indian partner. I'm not talking about surviving in India. I'm saying you can't survive in the world. Because if you have to sell, look what happened to KTM. It was almost bankrupt. And then comes in Bajaj, ties up with Bajaj. Bajaj picks up stake in that. All the lower CC bikes, it makes at 35-40% cheaper price. Because all the cost is the design. It is not in manufacture. I mean, you can take out certain costs out in manufacturing. Of course you can. But how you design the product and how you do it itself. So when you have a twin kind of a strategy of a brand, it's similar engine going one in a KTM and one in going a Pulsar. But the KTM being as a brand price 40-50% higher. Okay, you completely change the rules of the game. And this is what Bajaj did. So, so the reason I'm telling you this background is also that we believe that India has also started becoming the R&D center of two-wheelers now. Okay, so uh, Triumph has followed now and you know, BMW has tied up with TVS and now Ali is you know, tying up with Hero. So you can see that that happening basically. So we said two-wheelers is going to survive. It's going to be a great uh, business and as and when electrification happens, two-wheelers are the first ones to get electrified. So it's a great industry to be in. Okay, So this is the second reason about the industry. And the third, the final reason was that while they were competitors in the market out there. First, they were much lower than as compared to cars. For example, if you want a car to be financed, you have almost every bank falling over you to finance it. You want a two-wheeler to be financed, you'll rarely see a bank falling over. You rarely see a Bank of Baroda or SBI coming in, you know, giving a two-wheeler loan. So the number of competition was low because it's a small ticket, very challenging, very collection intensive. The second is, of course, is that there were a lot of open spaces where nobody was focusing on. And that's what we wanted to do. So we didn't want us... Uh, just because we are from Bajaj, we didn't want to just pick up the phone and talk to all the Bajaj dealers and saying that, look, I am now in the two-wheeler business. And of course, they would invite us because they are our friends. But how can I compete with a Bajaj, which has funds at 30% cheaper than me and has a huge history of the background with them and is a capital finance company? Okay, I can't compete. So I have to choose my battles. And that's what we did. What was the, what, which area did you see as underserved that you could make, like establish yourself in? So when you look at the entire two-wheeler industry, one of the things which struck us immediately and it was a, such a aha moment at that time and I still remember in fact Karnakaran my, my co-founder has a date also written down somewhere I don't remember the date so we were sitting in the Pune club and we were having a beer and that's when we were discussing this and we said hey hold on I think it's I said that I said oh hey hold on there's nobody who finances second hand two-wheelers in India okay that's a two-wheeler industry right now so the point is the moment you think two-wheeler people think only about new two-wheelers okay so that's the first mindset shift and said second hand two-wheelers we said yeah that's that's now of course it has its own challenges there's a very good reason why people have not gotten into it okay but the fact is that there was that market available there it was the space which is there and today after five years we are the largest financier of second hand two-wheelers in India Okay, and it's a highly profitable business. It's a business which can be done very nicely. 
And it is a business which has moats built around it because one of the big car startups, I'll not name it, car startups, thought that doing bikes is like doing cars itself and didn't realize that a 40,000 rupee bike, if you want to go and do a 120 point check, which they claim they do the cars, okay? You cannot send a man to do it then because you, you can't afford to do it because the cost structure will never, you know, let you do it actually. So you need to have a very good understanding of the two-wheeler industry. You need to understand what to buy. You need to understand where, which to finance, etc. and all that. So that's where the moat started building around it. And you were able to do at a much higher price and much. So that's where we started actually our journey. And that's one example. We have many such examples. So the second example, for example, is this entire almost 40% or 50%, like 54% of the market today is in the semi-urban and rural towns of India. And as you start going to those towns, you see financing starting dropping down. The finance penetration itself overall is about 50%. Now, again, the finance is 50% penetration as far finance penetration is about 85 90%. And you know that the two-wheeler prices have been going up steadily in the last uh, two, two and a half, three years. Now, it's almost 30% higher than as compared to what it was two, three years back. So financing is becoming more and more important. And as you start going towards tier two, tier three towns and the smaller villages, the number of financials start dropping down drastically. And that's where then we saw open space wherein I wouldn't say there's zero competition there but I would say there's very less competition wherein we could go and that's when we did a very interesting product at Bajaj which used to finance customers who didn't have bank accounts and so we, we over a period of time we refined that product and now it's a very successful product for Bajaj somehow many other financiers tried to do it but they were not able to do it how do you do that like financing without a bank account See, now it's no rocket science, but it's very difficult to execute. So I think execution, it's all about execution. And this is inspired from the fact that when I read The Banker to the Poor, there was one, one sentence which stuck in my mind. It says, it's not as if the customer is not credit worthy. It is banks which are not customer worthy, actually. Okay, So just because he doesn't have a bank account or nowadays he has a bank account, a lot of people have bank accounts, but they don't use the bank for a lot of transactions. Okay, So it doesn't mean that he's not credit worthy. Okay? And so first is that, that, that mindset change, say that, gee, I don't need a repayment instrument if I give you a loan. Okay. See, today it is, it's unheard of that you give a loan without a repayment instrument because you take checks during those days. And so you used to take checks. Now you take a NAC mandate. You take a mandate every month. It goes to the bank and the money comes out and all that. And the idea is that if it bounces, you can take legal action against them. You can put section 138 or cheating, etc. You can do all that kind of stuff. And But when I go and ask people that how many section 138s you are successful in the two-wheeler loan, the answer is zero actually. Okay. So removing from your mind the mindset that I need a repayment instrument. So I don't take a repayment instrument. But I tell them that you have various ways to pay me. You can pay me through Google Pay. You can pay me to any of the digital payments. But more important, he can walk back to the dealership and in many cases, it's actually not a dealer, but a sub-dealer from where he bought the bike. And every month he can go and pay his installment there. Okay. And create a complete ecosystem around it. So there's a lot of tech involved in it. It's not just like that. Cash has to be handled. It has to be done properly. So all that has to be done. And so that was the model which became very successful at Bajaj. And we took the same model and replicated it. And we started doing it for other companies. Mm. So, so we do it for Hero, which is very big, as well, especially in the North. So for Hero, we have been quite successful in penetrating the hero market. We have been quite successful in looking at, you know, now Honda we're looking at, we're looking at that. So this is another example of going into a territory where the competition is lesser, where you have an expertise in some way, okay, develop it. So uh, I guess that has been my most important learning at Bajaj. Like we have kept on saying no when whenever anybody wants us to come to Bombay to do new vehicles or Bangalore to do new vehicles or whatever it is. We say, no, what is it I can add value? I can't. There's no value I can add. 
If you like to hear stories of founders, then we have tons of great stories from entrepreneurs who have built billion-dollar businesses. Just search for the Founder Thesis Podcast on any audio streaming app like Spotify, Ghana, Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show. So uh, tell me about that zero to one journey. You had something in mind, but I have generally seen that the best laid plans when they meet reality, that, you know, things change and you, you, there is always a period of struggle and until you fix some faulty assumptions and find that product market fit and the right way of doing things. So I'd love to hear about that journey. Yeah. Let me just, before I answer that, just add that it's not just the zero to one. Actually, it's zero to five. It's happening every time. So I think every day our assumptions are getting questioned, rightly so, not questioned by anybody, but by the market. And you are changing. As I said, the first moment for us was that secondhand vehicles. I said that let's do and in secondhand vehicles, actually, you see the entire industry of two-wheeler secondhand vehicles. It's actually run by mom-and-pop sh- shops. People call them brokers, but, you know, that's not a good name to call them. They're not brokers. They really invest in stock. So they are unorganized retail outlets. Let me put it this way. So you go to, say, for example, Hyderabad, and you go to this market, and there you will see, you know, in the about 100, 150 of these small dealers were selling. So it's a two-wheeler market, actually. You go, you can buy, sell, you know. And th- these people have been doing it for generations. So that is the place where we wanted to get our customers from. That's the easy way of getting customers rather than going a direct route to the customer, basically. How do I know somebody wants to buy a second and wait? So we go to that market. So this is how we did it. We And so uh, when we started doing this, and I still remember the first month of operation, we were supposed to do, I think the number we were supposed to do, we had started only Pune and we had started Bangalore, only two two cities. And we said the first month, we'll do 100 vehicles. How did you fund it? Like, how did you get an NBFC license or were you like tying up with NBFCs? And like, no, no. So what we did was right from the beginning, we said we will build a book of our own, okay, at least initially, because it takes time for people to understand this. And so, so we went for an NBFC license. So we bought an existing company. We got a transfer done. We changed all that. We also were looking at funding. And so, again, it's one of those lucky moments when I asked somebody at EY, whom I knew well, saying that, look, uh, how do I do this? Now, this is something which I had never done. Okay. Uh, at Bajaj, one thing I never learned is how to raise money. Okay, Because uh, I was never in the finance department. So I heard we didn't need to raise money, actually. Okay? And even when I was not of finance, the treasury was common. So, Rajiv Jain's team was raising money. So, I just had to tell them, I need so much money. And they would bring it in, basically. So, uh, so we said, how to raise equity and debt, of course, is that. So, for equity, so I asked this EY guy and he actually put me up to a PE fund, a VC fund in Bangalore called Elevare. And I went there and met Sandeep and Jotsna uh, and I asked for an appointment. And one of the things about Elevare is that the first meeting in Elevare is always done by the decision makers, which is very unlike any other PE fund. In fact, I don't even understand how PE funds are able to do this, that they have the junior most guy talking to an entrepreneur who actually has gone through the journey quite a lot. And because you need to make a decision somewhere fast. So Elevar exactly turns it on his head and say that so at first we will meet. And if so I had a I think I still remember I had my laptop, I had my entire business plans made, everything ready. And I went there. So Sandeep told me, no, just shut your laptop. I don't want to see anything. Just tell me about something. And see, I think not about 45 minutes or 50 minutes down the line, said that we are very interested. Just get back to me with your detailed plans and we are very interested. And that's it. So, and I was going on a holiday and said, I'll get, come back from the holiday and then I'll talk to you. So I came back from the holiday and we met, we met my team. We had already created a team. 
and they agreed to fund us and we sat across the table haggled a bit and i agreed to it and then i came out and said hey i hope i not got gypped so i then i called a friend of mine who was in the pe business and i told him this is a valuation model he said no you got a good deal so that's it now the problem was that we had that funding but we didn't have a company so we had to you know rush it to all the company and all that. so anyway that was the, the initial source of funding was equity so we raised 23 crores as a first round and eleva funded it actually so on uh, so when we started in this first one we were supposed to sell about 100 odd vehicles 100 uh, finance 100 vehicles and we financed a grand total of two vehicles in that month was this like through through the tie ups with the dealers the second hand vehicle dealers okay yeah we did all the tie ups we did everything see we had a app etc and all that but we knew that these guys are not going to do any such thing because first of all financing itself was new to them second is that so we would have a guy who would be hanging around the market here and the app he would put everything and we would do the credit and we would do the disbursements and all that see uh, and remember so we have worked at a scale which was huge at bajaj auto finance you know i was doing 10000 odd crores so that uh, only an auto finance uh, business and here to you not know, think to downsize your thinking and come back to that level is not very easy okay but we were doing everything ourselves so and two vehicles we did and i said shit this is like really something is wrong with was it because customers were not there or your approvals were not allowing you to like you were not able to approve no the customers were not there at all in fact uh, it's not as if our approvals because we, we were sitting waiting for the you know the, uh, customers I mean, it's not as if we rejected a lot of cases or something like that so uh, then then uh, a lot of you know funders started getting saying that we used to disperse the money to the uh, URO unorganized retail outlet the broker so they would not like money to come into their account they wanted cash we said we can't do cash disbursements so all those the reality started hitting and then that's how we started then working along with them working along with the chartered accountants taking rca explaining to them gst had just come into that country okay gst was also evolving so i think those were the fears you know so the, the dealers obviously the uh, urs were not obviously pumping for our product and and in india you have to meet a person at least three times before he starts telling you what really he has in his mind so he uh, they don't want to displease you so they say no no this is very good you know we like <laughs> but actually they would not do it you know so i think inability to say no is ingrained in indians <laughs> so we and we started learning a lot so first thing we also did was that we hired service engineers because we are obviously financing a second hand vehicle so one of the most important thing is that the quality of the vehicle and secondly also the valuation to you know how do you value the vehicle so uh, so obviously so these people started going and they would value the vehicle and all that but we also realized that in the long run this cannot work when you are going to scale up when you have a huge number of vehicles you cannot you know keep on sending your service in a battalion of service units to do it and all that so also developing our own grid valuation grid out of our experience but that grid was like an algorithm basically like you would input data points like color model make and how many owners and then it could throw up the valuation something like that yeah so that's exactly what we thought we should do but thank god we didn't do that because we realized very quickly that all that matters really is uh, for the price is that what is that bike and what is the brand and what is the year and a reasonable amount of guarantee that uh, the vehicle engine is in very proper condition that's all matters really nothing else matters okay so it's all theoretical the rest especially because you are doing a vehicle which is costing like for what 35 40000 rupees max okay so that's the kind of thing i know that an activa has a higher resale price as compared to say some other scooter or i know that a splendor has this and then i know that a 2017 model will command this price 
because it's at, at the end of the day, it's about that pricing actually is what it commands and ensure that the vehicle is not a lemon. Okay. That means basically I've seen that people who go and buy, they know how to check, you know, the outs there, you know, they just check the brakes, they check the battery, let's do all that. The only thing they are not able to check is the engine. You know? So normally during the good old days, people used to take a mechanic, you know, along with them. So the, so what we finally boiled down to, you know, keeping it simple and keeping it very narrow focused, is saying that I want to know whether the engine is good or not before I finance the vehicle. And so we developed uh, for that actually a method. You know? So we have a recording of the sound of the engine and the smoke. Okay. And based on that, we decide a go no go kind of thing now over a period of time we have now a huge database of these kind of sounds and smoke and we have now started putting that into some kind of a ai led kind of right. algorithm because uh, we also want to now start becoming more and more precise which says that what is wrong with the uh, engine is it a tappet adjustment is it just as as simple as that or is it something else okay uh, so uh, and and how much it may cost to refurbish it tomorrow because we are also getting into the business of buying and selling our second hand vehicles so so you your this person would record the engine audio on the mobile app that was how you were doing it yeah initially it was very crude that you know he would record it on the mobile and send on whatsapp but today we have a proper app so he takes those photos and he takes the sound of the engine and takes the smoke Smoke like a video of the smoke. There's a video, the video of smoke. And since it's an app, we have been able to compress the file sizes quite a lot. So it comes in and we have about five or six service guys across India. So it goes to anybody of them and he just sees it and he approves it on. So we are now seeing what is approving and why is approving it. And we are using that to start automating that. You can use machine learning to like... Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. See, one of the one of the complications of machine learning is not actually the it's actually the data. Yes, you need labeled data, labeled data. So I think so. We have the data, so we start work. Uh, we work. We are working on that. That's how we are looking at it really. So, how did you evolve the product to meet the dealer objections, like the GST concern, the cash concern? Did you change the product, or that was just a education? initiative that you had to undertake? No. So what we did was that in, in certain cases, we changed the product. In certain cases, we didn't change the product because there were fundamentals to our business. For example, cash disbursement, we said, no, we'll not do this. Okay. There is no way in which we can do it. And I'm glad we didn't do it because today it's working perfect. Nobody is talking about it now. Okay. So I think it was early fears and all that. Uh, similarly about GST, etc. and all that. But for example, okay. we used to insist that every vehicle that we fund uh, should be insured by us. Now, okay. there we have, we changed the product because insurance means we said that it has to be comprehensively insured. Now, there are certain products where the product itself was costing 25,000 rupees and our loan was, our loan was 25,000. Maybe the product was 30 or 32, 33,000. So at a 25,000 rupee ticket size for him, paying another 2,500 rupees as a insurance product became a problem. So we said, okay, then in these cases, uh, lesser than a particular value, we just do the third party insurance. As it is, the bike has a, any problem, then this guy will repair it himself or something like that. So in some cases, we change the product. Okay. So I think it's a learning. And Karuna is very good at this. Karuna Karun, my, my co-founder again, he has the ear to the ground. He understands the market very well. And he's the one who keeps our company straight in terms of being very customer focused. Okay. His favorite dialogue is that even when we do anything on tech, for example, he will all uh, ask the tech guy, are you doing it for yourself or are you doing it for the, for the customer? How does it help the customer? If it doesn't help the customer, I don't want it, you know. So I think uh, that's where listening to them and, you know, understanding from them uh, paid uh, good dividends. And it was also a cultural issue with some of our sales guys because we had hired them from the two-wheeler industry and they were accustomed to going to dealers. Uh, and dealers are big guys. I mean, 
many of the dealers don't even sit in the dealership and they have you know a general manager who looks after it right? so there's an air conditioned cabin wherein you sit and you talk in a shop and then you, know, you then ask him to lift uh, two three loads and then you come out whereas here this guy is literally on the road he's sitting there on the road and our guys have to you know interact with him you know and uh, sit with him and drink tea with him and so i think that also took a bit of a time for them to get out of that because at the end of the day, that relationship matters a lot and the people were scared that we may take away their business one day no? so that was also another thing i think when they started realizing that we are not here to take away their business but their business will actually grow and almost everybody today says that who are final we have about 550 odd uh, uros who are registered with us what is uro an organized retail outlet an organized retail outlet so and all of them uh, more or less say that the business has gone up by 20 30% after we started financing product uh, for them yeah the that's basically the bnpl promise right like if you start offering bnpl to your customers your sales go up absolutely absolutely so i think that's it so but as i said the learning never stops it is there every day of the year so the other thing that we understood and it was so surprising when we found out that before we started the second hand two wheeler business we were being very very professionals and coming from so we did a market survey and we hired one of the best market survey companies i, I don't think i would ever do that again sorry nothing against the market research companies they play their part they play their role but it was too early for us to do that actually so we wanted to give and get an assessment how big is the market and what it is and all that and they did all that and it came out that the market is like for 100% that means for every one new vehicle getting sold one second hand vehicle is getting sold okay now and i have seen this number being quoted left right and center by a lot of people also but after 5 years let me tell you it's nowhere near that the market is less than 50% actually and the car market is about 150% for every one new car 150 no wonder the second hand car market is booming today no now the reason was yeah that's why there's so many unicorns in in that space absolutely unicorns in this space and this and, and as i said the unicorn trying to do this space they quickly realize that ye bada nahi chhod do isko kar so the uh, if you go beyond eight or nine cities in india okay the second hand these brokers uros or whatever you may call them they don't even exist so a lot of informal exchanges take place and all that and people actually do not get good rates so they don't sell they just keep on adding the why bike somebody in the family rides it in. so for us that opened up another stream of thought saying that we can actually start an, uh, 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 another stream of business which gets into actually uh, into the smaller towns where we are already doing i told you about the entire financing the unbanked or the underbanked customers we are doing new vehicles there so we said that we can actually start buying and selling second hand vehicles there and setting up a second hand vehicle franchisee outlet and we started doing this and today we have almost about 25 30 of them across india next year we'll have 100 of them and what we do is that now we already know how to value the bike we already know how the quality of the bike we can assess now as i said we also know what we need to refurbish we actually buy the vehicle refurbish it and sell it off to this uh, franchisee and we guarantee that there's a six month warranty on the bike etc and all that and give the customer a full experience of as if he's buying a new bike okay uh, because he gets a guarantee he gets a refurbished bike and we do the entire paper transfer get the paper transfer done and also ensure that we do a financing people ask me that are you a finance company are you a marketplace what are you so i said look there are two ways in which a business can grow one is that you go horizontal which means that i am financing two wheelers let me start financing by three wheelers uh, wow trucks etc and maybe tomorrow housing loans and become a generic nbfc okay on the other way is that i go deeper and i actually i say that i will do everything around the two wheeler and so so i am neither i am actually a two wheeler company that's what i am so i want to follow the two wheeler through its life cycle of 15 years 
okay, a 15 to 20 years is the life cycle of the two-wheeler. It changes hands three or four times. So I want to be there when it changes hands. I want to finance it at that time. I want to refurbish it at that time. I want to buy and sell it at that time. So I want to keep on adding that value at that uh, thing. And then suddenly it opens up horizons of doing things like leasing and things like, you know, all those kind of things, it starts opening up. So I would say this is the learning that I got from saying that but by being differentiated, while you may be sacrificing on some fronts, on other fronts, you have actually a great advantage of going deeper and deeper into it. Now, imagine a HDFC bank or somebody trying to buy and sell second-hand vehicles. Forget financing second-hand vehicles. Okay, so these are my competitions. So they will never get into that. Okay, And that's how it happened with electric vehicles also. And we are one of the, I wouldn't say the biggest, but we are one of the very, very leading, what you call the financial of electric vehicles today. Okay, and I also know that the future of electric vehicles is going to depend on financing. And it is going to depend on the, on, on, on the capability of the person to actually finance the battery rather than financing the vehicle itself. Mm, because battery is the biggest uh, cost component and it needs replacement in a couple of years, I think. Actually, so three years is the warranty that they are giving nowadays for the battery. But I've seen that if you ride 100 kilometers a day, which a lot of delivery boys, whether it is Swiggy or Zomato, they do ride about 90 to 100 kilometers a day. You need to charge twice and your life becomes half and you no know, 18 months you need to replace the battery. So we have done, we have started doing extensive, we have done extensive work with the riders. See, one of the things that we like to do is rather than talking to uh, the company, we like to talk to the person who's a rider actually. And we got riders to come to our offices from uh, wherever we have offices. We got the, all kinds of electric vehicles. We made them ride all of them. And got a lot of feedback saying that what they like, what they don't like. This is light and this is not strong enough. I have to carry so many kilos and all that. And they're so good at the calculations that they're the only guys who actually have proven to me that. And maybe I'm, I hope I'm not entering into a controversy here, but let me say it is that at today's level, unless you're riding at least 80, 90 kilometers per day, the electric vehicle does not break even. Because of the battery replacement cost? Absolutely. And the fact that you still have a very, very good two-wheeler second-hand market. The IC engine market is not gone away anywhere. You are getting penalized on both sides. On one side, at the end of three years, you are able to make money, by not make money, you are able to get a residual value for your IC engine vehicle. And on the other hand, you are able to, you know, all this. So I think that's where we have started developing specialist products for around this. I'm not saying electric vehicles are going to go away anywhere. They are going to become big. So we need to actually develop right business models around it. So we are doing all kinds of things. We are financing only the battery. We are doing renting the battery. We're doing all that kind of things. So we want to understand what is going to work. For example, we know what is not going to work. So we tried to do this. We said that bring your IC engine vehicle to us and we will give you an electric vehicle, new one, exchange. Because anyway, the, this has a residual value. I'll take that as a down payment for me. And again, like the first day, first month's experience, we thought we'll do about in the maybe at least 40, 50 vehicles in the first year. We did one vehicle. Okay, because people didn't want to give up their IC engine. Okay, so they still wanted that around. And in fact, we had a very interesting proposition. We had one guy who told us, sir, what I'll do is that I will ride my IC engine vehicle and I will come to your office and leave it there. Okay, you give me a uh, electric vehicle and uh, I will ride it for my deliveries. I'll come back and leave it back with you. Okay, so ridership is more important than ownership. And that's what is going to happen. And then finance companies like us, specialists like us, will have to you know, play a very big role in developing products around that. I want to kind of do like a timeline. So 2017, you did 
two vehicles in first month. How did those numbers progress then? Oh yeah, so then we started saying that I think within the third month, we crossed uh, the 100 vehicle mark and the fifth month, we crossed the 500 vehicle mark. Okay, so that's how we started doing. And then I think the, if you look at our growth, Pune, Bombay, Mumbai. No, then we started opening also there, other locations. Today, now we are present in close to about, including the rural villages and all that places. We are present in almost about 400 odd touch points. We are quite branchless. We don't have branch offices, etc. Everybody operates out in the field. All the entire, you know, disbursement, entire operation, entire processing of loan is centralized at Pune. So we have a backend here. Okay. And so that does it. And so just to give you an example, uh, last year we disbursed about 340 crores worth of loans. And this year we did 650 crores of loans. And the next year we are debating whether we should do 1,500 or we should do 1,300. So I think somewhere around around that we want to do it. More than doubling. So what is driving this growth? Is it geographical expansion or is it that more people are opting for financing? What's the secret behind the growth? No, I wouldn't say that. Uh, see, uh, it is... Uh, First of all, we are still very we are very small. At Bajaj, I was accustomed to doing fifty thousand vehicles a month. We are doing ten thousand vehicles a month. Here. We have one fifth, but reaching ten thousand in five years also is pretty good. So it's I think that's a good achievement for the team has done. We look at both. We look at the same store sale as well as expansion, both, and it's a very healthy combination of both of it. So our market share has to increase in where we are present, and we also then will open up also newer outlets for this. So that's the expansion. And in the finance business, liability also plays a very big part of your ambition. Okay, for disbursing so much money, you should also have the capability of raising that much money. If you ask me today that, you know, why I'm not doing 7,000 crores, I would say that I can do 7,000 crores maybe given a year and a half's time. But then I have to have, ensure that my liability side is tied up. Okay, so that's what will limit it, the growth. So that's why it takes time. Okay. So today, for example, we became very successful this year in doing co-lending with a bank. And next year, we are actually planning 50% of our business will be on co-lending. So slowly, now that the model has been proven, now the collections has been stable, everything has been good. We have survived one ILFS and three COVIDs. Okay. And so I think we have reached a stage wherein I think people have started saying that, yes, uh, they are there for the long run now. Uh, when did you get to new vehicle financing? You, you told me you're doing for Hero World. So timeline ways, we started 2017, as you rightly said, second-hand vehicles. So 2017, uh, one year we didn't do anything. Then 2018, uh, we dabbled a bit in one of the failed experiments of trying to do in the same cities where we were doing second-hand vehicles, which are big cities, right, to do some new vehicles, but through a different, uh, what you call, distribution channel, uh, not through the main dealer, but, you know, through some broker dealers, etc. We knew that it was a little bit risky, but we still thought we had certain things done, but we decided that it's not worth doing it because the numbers were also not that big. That was, uh, then the next year was when we actually went rural actually. So 2019 is when we went rural and then it was one hell of a growth actually. And so 2020. So rural is, is when you got into new vehicle financing also because rural is underserved by the traditional banks and. Exactly. So we always knew about it. We always thought, but you know, uh, going rural, you needed you needed at least one company to tie up with you actually, or one company to give you a chance to do it along with you because there's a lot of dealer dependency and all that in this kind of thing. And uh, that company, while it could have been Bajaj, but it, there was no point because Bajaj was so good at it. So we, there was no point in us competing it. So 
we got a, a, a breakthrough with hero and uh, then we never looked back and today as i said we are doing also honda and we are looking at tbs now so and then timeline wise then the next year we said that no we have to expand the second hand two wheeler business and that's when we started the marketplace actually and this year we rebranded our company into completely bike bazaar it is surprising that when i registered the company i registered both wheels emi and bike bazaar actually saying that at one day we'll do the marketplace but that thing happened a little earlier and so now we actually go under the brand name of bike bazaar which does the marketplace which is into uh, basically buying selling and servicing and financing okay so you're building everything around the vehicle actually so uh, how do you refurbish you have uh, are you building that in house capability to like a servicing center and the mechanic and all that or? we are building in house capability in terms of knowledge and in terms of driving the customer yeah we are not investing in the in, in, in brick and mortar or the infrastructure so it's basically franchisee model but branded bike bazaar okay and so the franchisee brings in the investment whether it is buying selling servicing or whatever it is but directed by us okay uh, so we have a excellent service team so the they you follow the, uh, the complete uh, what do you call standard operating procedures and you do that basically so like the franchisee gets a checklist like tenting painting oil changes etc yes so yeah and yeah all that is there and we are also started training franchisees on the servicing electric vehicles okay now there's a very big misnomer that electric vehicles don't need servicing unfortunately some of the oes also feel that way okay nothing can be further from the truth and we have seen it happening extensively that uh, the electric vehicle needs also servicing so and uh, very few service centers around so we started training our our people into uh, and the oes are helping us to do that actually so the idea is that you are a franchisee in service for example so you are somewhere somebody in between absolute roadside mechanic versus who is a oe driven mechanic or whatever it is a, a workstation so we the advantage of this this person to tie up with us is that we are able to push customers to him because we are financing a lot of customers so we have huge amount of database of customers that we can push we are able to give him our vehicles for refurbishment which we want to sell for the raw okay and we have started tying up with insurance companies to do cashless in his dealerships so he gets that and the fourth is that he starts getting spares and oils at rates which he can't negotiate and which we can negotiate and get it for him basically okay so so that's the model so you end up owning the entire knowledge structure and the contact structure but you don't you don't necessarily have to own the the screwdriver and the pneumatic no a lift or whatever it is no? that's not needed you know? how do you keep the customer with you lifetime like you said that you drive servicing like if you financed the bike of a customer you would also recommend a service center is it through an app or is it through sms or what is it like yeah so uh, again uh, still a lot of work under development of this aspect uh, we are for example we still don't have a proper crm and we just about 3 months back we tied up with the sales force so we have started developing the entire thing i think our first a lot of for this is coming out next month so you know use the once you have a crm that sales force is pretty good at these things and once you start doing this you start actually also developing also analytics and start pushing it in india i don't think a pure uh, digital model is going to work you need to do a combination of a digital as well as a call center both you need to do both okay and then you also need to have a place wherein the customer can finally go and that's where the franchisee comes in the last mile in terms of whether it's a buying or a selling or a delivery or a service will always have to happen either at the customer's doorstep or will have to happen uh, at the shop and th- that is where the franchisee uh, uh, network develops the so there are two companies in one one which is actually developing the entire 
tech to you know push these people uh, into that and the other part which actually fulfills that journey so okay okay and do you rely on any digital acquisition tools or is your acquisition through the dealer network like yeah so i, I would say that almost 90% of our acquisition is through dealer network okay but we uh, have tie ups with for example we have a tie up with olx okay so uh, for procurement of bikes so whenever we see an ads there and all that we try to procure it but the journey is only part digital because then again it gets transferred into a phone call and then finally somebody a chat or something and then finally to doing that we also have tie ups with companies which actually push the customers to us okay there are these specialist web companies one of them is actually seriously looking at us you know as as a long term partnership with us so we actually pull from there and then part of the journey is digital in fact you can have 100% of the journey digital we have done that also but we have seen that most of it becomes part digital and part final uh, fulfillment but yeah that percentage is small uh, today still it's about 10 10 odd percent but i think it will grow it will develop and that can be our model by which we can actually even compete in the bigger markets so how do you do credit underwriting like is it like a ekyc and the person uploads a pan or something and then is it, it like, like tell me about how you do risk management so again it depends on the customer and depends on uh, we have two three products right you know so uh, the second hand product is uh, acts a little different uh, the, the as i said the rural customer there are two types of rural one who has a banking habit and one who doesn't have a banking habit so the journeys are different i wouldn't say journeys are different i would say the rules are different i would say so it's basically underwriting you're underwriting two things here you're underwriting the customer you're also underwriting the product kyc is standard so you need to collect the kycs etc rbi has now started allowing even nbfcs to use the aadhar based kyc which they had ruled out about 2 3 years back so we have applied for it we'll get it fast and then the journey will become still simpler but today other than aadhar we can look at any other a piece of paper and we can authenticate it digitally actually uh, and also uh, our form which has to be filled up for it uh, digitally it actually captures data from your kyc documents so you take a photograph it actually auto populates most of the stuff our journey uh, even today is not a customer direct journey it's assisted journey because even today the dealer trials there yeah so so our person is there our dma is uh, our sales guy is there who actually does this okay but the same thing can become a customer driven journey tomorrow if you want to do it he takes the, all the photographs the gets filled up it goes and hits the automatically it hits the this site up uh, the credit bureau you get the credit score immediately and depending on the credit score there's a ruling engine actually where depending on the credit score and depending on whether he's a customer who's a with income proof or without income proof or whatever it is it throws up certain things where there is a, either a fast track approval With, wherein it uh, approves a uh, soft approval is immediately given or there can be an approval uh, which says that this approval will be given only after we do a telephonic uh, verification okay or it can be an approval which can be done only after doing a physical inspection of his place of residence so 40% of 40% of our customers we do a physical visit so there then the loan would take about a month about a day to get approved Kind of a thing. Also, a lot depends on what kind of down payment you are you are putting up. So, uh, depending on the bike, for example, if it is if they are these hundred cc you know spenders and all this kind of uh, bikes or Activa or whatever it is, hundred cc bikes, we see the risk much lower there because the resale values are pretty high there. Okay, so we are able to go uh, at a higher LTV. 
But uh, if the product is a bigger product, okay, and especially if there's a product customer mismatch, then we may not even do it. Or if we do it, we may do it with a higher uh, LTV. Okay. So, so what do you mean product customer mismatch? You are a delivery boy and you want to actually buy a bullet. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Got it. Okay. So uh, your income is coming from deliveries. Okay. And uh, so you may not be able to afford the bullet EMIs or neither the maintenance. Or no. the, so that's the mismatch I was talking about. Happens because and there's nothing wrong. People have aspirations and they need to grow up. So it requires a bit of counseling saying that you don't even have a credit score. So you start with something which is a little smaller and build up your credit score. And then, and so that's one of the things which I've seen is that there's a huge amount of demand uh, or there's a huge amount of latent demand for higher end bikes in the smaller towns and smaller villages. Okay. Unfortunately, some of, some of the OEs are, have, don't have deep dealerships there. Okay. And also you don't have, you know, very great financiers many times. Exception, of course, is companies like Bajaj, etc., which does an excellent job of it. So that's it. One of the reasons Pulsar has grown so well even now is that more and more tier two, tier three, people are riding the Pulsar. Yeah, it has the same appeal of an iPhone for a certain category of people, like like having a Pulsar or one of those premium bikes. So like 40% of people who take loan from you are like new to credit. Like you said, 40% is home visit. This would typically mean they don't have a bureau score. No, no, it's more than that. It's about 60% are new to credit. It's not that all new to credit we visit the house. Okay, so, so, yeah, see, it's almost 60%. Okay, so if the income proof is like reliable, then you don't need to visit. Yeah, that's there. Reliable is there. Or it gives a full applicant. Or if there is a, one of the big advantages of doing in a rural belt is that most of the people have, have their own houses. Okay, and, and it's very easy to get the own house proof. So yeah. we have developed over a period. Now, what happens there is that, see, I'm coming to buy a bike and I say that I have my own house, but actually the house is not in your name. It's actually your grandfather's. Okay. And you are staying in a joint family where you are also one of them. Now, if I'm able to first prove that this guy has a connection and he's a grandfather and I'm able to prove that that document is genuine through the online, there are a lot of online verifications which you can do, then I don't need to visit his house. Okay, so uh, it's proven that, and it's our own house. So we get a lot of comfort from own house because then it gives a uh, kind of a stability. So the challenges of doing business in in, in a Eastern UP is actually a little lesser than the challenge of doing business in Bangalore, actually. And I'm very happy that people uh, don't do it. So it's good for us. Yeah, that, that's uh, amazing that there's so many people you are bringing into the credit network, giving them a credit score. Amazing. And that's where I think the banks are getting interested in doing co-lending along with us because they feel that then this is this is a product which you have tested it out and now the customer has done it. Now you can actually give a, a other loan and all that. And it's a very, the other thing which I wanted to say is that you know, sometimes people ask me that, are you not like an MFI loan? Actually, we, uh, the it cannot, it's very different, the MFI loan from the way it is procured, the way it is collected and all that. And we have seen this. We have seen MFIs trying to do two-wheeler business and really not succeeding because the collection pattern is very different. Okay. It is not, of course, it's not a group thing and you're not dealing with women. Mainly you're dealing with men now. Yeah. And so the collection is very different here. And what is your collection strategy? What do you do if someone doesn't pay? What does is, what is that piece of the business look like? Yeah. So I think there are two parts to this business. One is that how do you buy credit? Okay. And the second is how you collect. Now, so normally in every business, this needs to be balanced, actually, that you buy good credit, then you collect also very well. Okay. 
by credit, this term refers to like giving loan to good. Giving loan, yeah, yeah sorry. Yeah. This is a typical industry uh, terminology. This is the first thing I asked when I joined Bajaj Auto Finance. I said, what is this by credit? So uh, basically you're giving a loan. Okay, so 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 you, when you're underwriting a loan, say for example, so uh, in the two-wheeler business, if you cut the thing very, very fine, you may end up with having hardly any customers. Then, so it's essentially a collection-led business. Okay, it's more collection-led business. And it is not as if the customer doesn't have intention to pay, but the customer is a customer who may miss certain payments. Okay, uh, uh, and as I said, even uh, if you have a NAC mandate, uh, the check may bounce, the NAC will bounce, may bounce, and you need to collect smartly so that it is doing it. So you need to uh, create a good collection infrastructure. And at Bajaj, we had a we had an outsourced uh, collection in- infrastructure. But somehow that's one thing which we didn't pick up from Bajaj. We did it a little differently here. Our, uh, most of our collection is in-house, actually. And there's a lot of advantage of having an in-house collection as COVID proved also to us, is that you are able to actually know exactly what's happening to the customer. You're, remember that you sell only once, but you collect over 24 months. So, yeah, so you need to be uh, in touch with the customer. And if you have your own team, the touch uh, you are able to t- touch base very well with the customer. You know exactly what's happening to him. So uh, we have a bounce and the bounce gets collected at an almost a 96% efficiency. Okay. And you still have customers who will flow to the next bucket and then the next bucket. And then at some stage, you may have to repossess the vehicle. So if you are repossessing the vehicle, it's a very well thought of decision that you need that um, either the customer is having major issues or he doesn't have intention to pay. So you repossess the vehicle and then you use agencies, but you control the process very tightly. You ensure that you follow legally all the steps. You first ensure that you're processing the right vehicle, etc. and all that. So those are trade secrets. We do a good job of it. And so I think that's it. So if you look at it, 50% of my manpower or more than that, actually, I think. 50% of more than person is actually in collection. And this would be like call center like this, or on ground? like all, all types. So what happens is that the moment is from, it's like, a, it's like an army-led operation. On the first of the month, from the first of the month to eighth of the month, the call center would be calling. Basically, these are customers who have normally always bounced their payments, but have paid you. So, so you know that he's going to bounce anyway. So, why are you waiting for the bounce section? Okay, don't have to wait. You call. You know, you you can walk into a, this Airtel uh, uh, counter and pay. We are tied up with Airtel. Uh, yeah, you can do all that. So you can do all. So you do that. Then uh, on the eighth of the month, we bank, and by tenth, we get the bounces. And then the whatever remains then moves to our field team now. So then they start. Then first to it, the field team is busy collecting the older areas. So this is the so there's a cycle which gets followed. There's there's a full auth structure behind it. That's the reason I said that we can do seven thousand crores tomorrow if we want. We've created the entire uh, structure for that. The playbook is there, easy to scale now. No, the playbook is there. No, the people are also there actually. So we need to only uh, we need to only create uh, foot social soldiers, you know, as we go ahead. So. That's, uh, so after that first fundraise from LUR, how did you fund it subsequently? So we did a second uh, round of funding. I think it was in 2018. Okay, uh, where uh, a new investor came in uh, along with LUR, an yeah. investor called Fairing, uh, Fairing Capital. So Aditya Parikh, who's the son of Deepak Parikh, he's on the board of our company. So he they invested so in the company, and uh, now we are just in the midst of our third fundraise, external fundraise. We have just uh, tied up. Yeah, but uh, well, enough is to say is that we are raising close to about 240 crores. Okay. And uh, so uh, it's a combination of existing investors and a couple of new investors. 
more funding. And this is all equity funding? You, are you taking debt of? No, this is equity. But we also, you can't run the company only on equity. So that is, that is a continuing process. Okay? And so that is a continuous process. And okay. like, I think if you look at our balance sheet, till now we must have borrowed at least about 450 odd crores. So it is a, you need to, otherwise this business will not make money. You have to have a 1 is to 3, 1 is to 4 kind of a debt to equity ratio. Uh, you need to do that. And that's where you keep on improving your your operations, your credit ratings, then bringing down the cost of funds. So that process takes time, actually. How much does debt cost you? And at what what is your average interest rate when you give out a loan? Yeah, in the sense that usually uh, our, you know, if you look at the entire cost structures, in the sense, it's a very small ticket loan. The average ticket size is about 60,000 rupees for a new vehicle. And for second hand, it's still further down, so 35,000. So the percentages sometimes don't make sense because they look a little bigger. So you actually, you lend at about where about 21 to 23% and some amount of processing fee you charge. And you are able to borrow at about percent debt actually. So that's what you're able to do. So the rest is used for operations and all that thing. Okay. And what is your NPA ratio? Right. So in this business, you can expect an NPA at a very matured level of business at anywhere between 5 to 6% gross NPAs. But your actual losses will be around 3%. Okay, because you can repossess the vehicle and... You can repossess, you can collect and you can do all, all sorts of things. So that's it. But uh, we are today operating at less than... At the peak of COVID, as I said, we reached 6.8. Today we are operating at, at, at 4.4 or 4.5 or something like that. So do you want to go... There are two founders I have recently interviewed and they are also in the two-wheeler space. So I'm just... I don't know if you have time to answer this one more question. Sure, sure. But so one approach is the Credar approach where they are saying that we want to focus our energy on acquisition, like acquiring used bikes, because if we acquire, the buyers are there. And that is their primary focus, that how do we scale up acquisition of used vehicles and therefore they spend money on digital marketing and other ways so that anyone looking to sell a bike sells it to them which I thought was an interesting perspective. And then I also interviewed Auto Capital. And so they are doing like a leasing that, uh, why do you need to buy a vehicle? Just take it as a subscription and pay us as subscription fees and all. So, so which of these models seems appealing for you to pursue going down? Or, or do you want to do something different or a mix of both? Or? So I would say that we are a full-scale uh, two-wheeler company now. So leasing is one of our products. Okay, So it is not, so leasing is, uh, I would say, one of the products. And we do, we feel that leasing is going to be very important, mainly on two kinds of products. One is the product has to be an expensive product. Okay, usually I've not seen leasing working on uh, on a computer product. So it will work on a bullet or it will work on you know, something like that. And if you have the appetite, then it will definitely work on on, on Ducatis, etc. But that's very dicey. So don't, don't want to get into that territory really. But I would say that leasing a bullet or leasing a Pulsar uh, or leasing a KTM is something which we already do. You know? So it's part and parcel of a business model. It's just one more financial model. So that's there. The second is that when we're talking about our marketplace and is that I think both are important. Buying and selling both are important. And even servicing is important. See, unless you are, you can you control the entire chain of that. This and, and when you are when you are also financing the product, so you are already at the dealership. Your your exchange becomes much, so much easier. So it is like an integrated approach that we are taking here. We started. We built our finance company first, and because that is the most crucial thing. We are, all of this, the whole world runs around the finance actually. This entire thing. 
And one, uh, so, and then we are now adding this, this, these elements, which will complete the entire cycle of, of the product. So I would say that our model is uh, pretty much an integrated model, especially when you are talking to a dealer. When I talk to a dealer and say that, look, I'm financing a product. Can I also start exchanging in your vehicles uh, for you? It becomes a, for him, it becomes a solution in itself. And then when I tell the dealer that what, why don't you just open a small showroom and actually start selling these bikes? I'll help you to do it, basically. So it it adds not only some income to him, and he doesn't have unrealistic expectations on the income. Because for him, it's an add-on income. and But he knows that if he does that, his sale of new vehicles will go up. So I think all these things are tied with each other. So you know, it is difficult. I'm not saying it's impossible. I would say that breaking this into pieces and doing one part of it is good. Maybe tomorrow you can become an acquisition target then. Now, for somebody who doesn't have it. But I don't think we are building our company for acquisition. We are building it for something else altogether. But is acquiring supply something you want to do aggressively? Like anyone selling should know that, okay, I should sell through Bike Bazaar. I, I don't understand the word aggressive. So I think we will buy what makes business sense, actually. Okay. And I think burning cash is no longer an option for anybody, actually. You can have different profitabilities of the bikes. Since we sell the bikes also, we know exactly at what value you should buy it actually. Sometimes it's be- better to walk away from the deal rather than do the deal. See, one of the one of the things that I have seen which which makes me a little worried or is that huge amount of inventory is piling up about people who are buying very aggressively. It's a worrisome thing because it's a perishable commodity. The moment the year changes, the value depreciates. Like a- All that is there. All that is there. And finally, if you go back... And I have a lot of respect for the second-hand dealer fraternity. They have been doing this business for donkey's years. And I'm struggling here to value the bike. I'm using tech. I'm using that. This guy just on a phone call, he's able to give a quotation. And he's able to hold the bike and he's able to sell it. So if you have to do a deal with him, I don't think that you will be able to do a very, very good deal, actually. So essentially, the dealer remains your primary partner whom you want to empower. I think so. I think so. In one way, is that it is a, it's a business wherein you should use the ability of the of a businessman. I would like to multiply my entrepreneurship journey into thousands of entrepreneurs. Okay, because that adds the boost and that adds the volumes to me. Really, because what an entrepreneur can do, trust me, it will be very difficult for an employee. Absolutely, I agree with you. And our franchisees, we do not take a franchisee unless he puts in at least five lakh rupees as a deposit with us. Because we believe that if your money is not in the business, we don't give credit. So if your money is not there in the business, uh, then then you do not do the business, actually. You're not in business. Yeah, you're not an entrepreneur if you don't have skin in the game. It, it is table stakes. And when we started WheelZMI, uh, uh, we as promoters, we put in our own money first. So we went. Uh, so when we went to the market, uh, we told them that we put our money. And I think that helped us, actually, a lot. And in this round also, we are putting our own money again. The long-term path for you is an IPO? Like I don't know. I don't know whether an IPO or whatever. So whatever makes sense at that time. Anyway, we are still a good four or five years away from whatever we want to do. Okay. So whatever makes sense at that time, we will see everything is open. So we don't know how the business models are going to shift. One thing I've realized in life is never predict anything actually. <laughs> yeah, we don't know how EVs will change the market now, but I suspect EVs would really work well for leasing, especially the gig workers would be happy to do a pure lease-based EV acquisition. But yeah, it will work well with leasing, but it is not as simple that it will be uh, leasing along with doing something with the battery also. So, so by the pay-per-use, leasing is a straightforward, it's no different than financing. 
I, I essentially I don't see any difference at all. There is just a residual value. This doesn't have a residual value. That's all. Now in here, what residual? So tell me uh, in the EV, what residual value will put? If the battery goes away, the residual value is nothing. Okay, so leasing or uh, leasing is equal to financing. So so I think maybe there will be a new name for it. It will be almost pay, maybe like a long term rental, like essentially. Yeah, it's like that. So pay per use kind of a thing, or you actually lease the bike and don't lease the battery. Okay, you lease the bike and rent the battery. So all those kind of things. Maybe. People are doing these kind of models and all that. So I think, but again, I don't think you cannot do this unless you have a good distribution network. And that's what we are building actually. A tech company enabled by a distribution network is what is going to make the difference. Do you see EVs as being a bigger part of your lending, like the revenues going forward or do you think it will be IC? I don't know. Frankly, if anybody today is able to answer that question, we should go back after five years and ask them. So let me do this way that I don't want to predict the market, but I want to be prepared. Okay. So today in our company, we have a separate vertical which handles EV. So the EV is handled by a separate set of people. We are very interested in doing all kinds of experiments we are about to finance 50-odd vehicles wherein we are actually not financing the vehicle. We are financing the kit and the battery. The kit which converts the vehicle and the battery. Okay. So, that's so we want to try all this out. We want to pilot all this. We want to keep in mind certain learnings are already there. And so that you are prepared. You know, as a, And today, we are consistently doing what 300, 350 numbers of EVs every month. Anyway, normal financing that we keep on doing, okay? So we have already got experience. We have repossessed vehicles. We have sold vehicles. We have done all of that. So I think, so really it doesn't matter. If the market completely becomes EV, also we are ready. So we're there. Uh, do you see a role of IoT in EV, uh, in the EV business? Because you could track where the vehicle is, how much it's being used, that for repossession also it will help. Or you could even do something like just disable the vehicle if the installment is missed and things like that through a IoT. Sure. In fact, we developed an IoT for uh, IC engine vehicle in 20, I think it was year 2007, I had developed an IoT. So, oh, wow. Okay. Within Bajaj. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, IoT, but of course, we never used much of it. But IoT uh, uh, definitely will help. And IoT will, especially uh, IoT will, will become mandatory after a period of time uh, for doing this kind of things. This is like a follow-on conversation. And since we last spoke, you raised a pretty big $20 million round. I just thought we'd add some of that in the show to make it more topical. So tell me about that. Yeah, okay. Yes, we did raise that money in the bank situation now. And we have a new investor who has joined the captain. And it's a company called Women's World Bank based out of New York. And the mandate of Women's World Bank really is actually to fund companies which are into predominantly, which are into or doing business with women in the sense that basically giving loans or empowering women in any which way that they could. And I think this is the first time that they have, I think, invested in a two-wheeler company. And we have actually for long been saying this, that Women on Wheels is actually a very empowering kind of a project that one can have. Almost 26% of two-wheeler riders are women now. And I have personally seen this even in smaller towns, also smaller villages now, women are riding quite a lot. And this is really directly related to the fact that they are able to further their education, they are able to do more business, they are able to have uh, employment. So I would say that a two-wheeler is a 
quickest way of empowering women in India today. And in fact, when we are looking at electric vehicles today, I see that the percentage of women who are buying electric vehicles is more than the percentage of women who are buying IC engine vehicles. So they are also taking to electric in a big way. And I think it's very topical. We're happy that Women's World Bank has come in and invested in our company. And so our entire engagement with them is more than just uh, receiving money. It's more also engaging them with the programs as to how we can get more and more women to ride on two wheels. So would you be like subsidizing for women or would you like just create more uh, marketing and communication and make it easier for women to buy? So subsidies are never a, a big answer to this. I think while, yes, we are running programs where there are certain discounts when a woman borrows from us. So I wouldn't say that they're highly subsidized, but there is a difference in the rate. There's a difference in the processing fee. There's more to encourage women to actually borrow and write. But I think more important for us is to run specific programs on certain categories. You know? And here also we are looking at really the bottom of the pyramid. So we are looking at the professions like beauticians, women who actually come to your home and do the beauty makeups. Yeah, like the Urban Club partners. Yeah, Urban Club. We have quite a few of beauticians who borrow from us. We are looking at women like the women who are in the healthcare sector, whether they are nurses, whether they are Asha workers. So I would say that category-wise run programs for them. Are you directly collaborating with platforms like Urban Club? That could be an interesting unlock? No, not really, not directly collaborating with them. But I think we have actually funded quite a few of women who are actually in Urban Clap. And so word of mouth has spread and people do come to us uh, directly. Uh, and what valuation did you raise at if you are at Liberty to share? So the fundraise is still not over. We have another 80 odd crores coming into the company, hopefully in the next two or three months uh, time. We're very, very close to closing that also. So my last question to you, what is your advice to our listeners who are considering entrepreneurship. It's not as if that I have seen it all, done it all kind of a thing and every journey is very different and can't have a template really. But one or two things I would definitely say is that Josh ke saath hosh, I don't know if you that understanding in India and let me just translate that. I think there's a lot of enthusiasm and there's a lot of energy and that is required. Without energy, you can't be an entrepreneur and you have to have a lot of belief in yourself, a bit of madness you should have. But along with that, uh, you also should have some kind of a logic, some kind of a, I see a lot of times now the business models are not completely vetted out. But the day that you depend only on valuation is gone. I mean, if you do not have a business model which shows profitability, if you do not have a business model which shows, you know, that there is a revenue stream which is coming in, then it's very difficult to raise money and it will not sustain. So pure tech without business, I think those days are gone. So that's there. The other is that choose your co-founder or co-promoter very well. Skills should not be similar. Skills should be quite supplementing each other. I see a lot of time it's the same skill sets which all the co-founders bring in and that becomes difficult many a times. So this is the second piece of advice and third is that don't lose heart. It's a tough journey many a times. Yeah, have grit and the earlier you start, the better it is. That, that's what I would say. I started very late in my life, but yeah, I wish I had done that earlier. That came with its own set of advantages. I'm sure you did not have to make so many mistakes and the scale up, would, you would have understood the playbook for scaling up? I would say yes and no. Yes, in the sense that we always thought about scale right from day one. And no, in the sense, maybe we we are a little conservative. Maybe we should have been a little more aggressive. So that's there. But yeah, I would say that we have a very young team also, having said that, along with us. And we have our investors who are very young. So I think we have a good mix right now. If you like the Founder Thesis podcast, then do check out our other shows on subjects like marketing, technology, career advice, books and drama. Visit the podium.in, that is T H E P O D I U M dot I N for a complete list of all our shows. <laughs>